rightly so, we are often warned against religious extremism. I can remember when that term first came onto the radar for me personally, and when I kind of began to learn of it, I was a sophomore uh, at White Plains High School. And I remember being out in the hallway and somebody coming and saying to me, hey, have you heard the news? Have you heard the news? A plane has crashed into one of the Twin Towers. And I remember the rest of the day us sitting and just a whole class, all, really the whole school gathered around the televisions and watching as these planes crashed in and seeing the replays over and over and, and watching as the towers fell and heroes are running toward them and, and victims are running from them. And I remember hearing people say, it's religious extremism. These are radicalized members of the Muslim faith that have come to attack because they believe that we are an attack on them. And so we are often warned against it. And I think that that thinking, that line of thinking has, has made its way into nominal cultural Christianity. I think for most Christians, for most professing Christians, the goal in life is not to transform the world through the revolution began by the Lord Jesus. And the goal is not primarily that you might pass the faith on to the next generation. The goal is not primarily that you might be salt and light in the community that the world might see and that the world might be preserved. That, but first and foremost, for the average family, it is simply to be normal. It is simply to be normal. To not be viewed as, religious, as a religious extremist, to not be viewed as a religious nut, not to be viewed as someone that's over the top, but just normal, blending in with the rest of the Bible belts. And I think for most, if our children just do that, we can be content. And if, if, our, if our grandchildren just do that, we can be content. In fact, we can be content when we look in the mirror and that's what we see in ourselves. But brothers and sisters, when you think about the Christian faith, when you think about the things that Christ is calling us to, first of all, it is nothing less than religious extremism. But secondly, when you radicalize Christians, do you know what you get? You get more goodness. You get more kindness. You get more patience. You get more love. You get more joy. If you take the Christian faith to the most extreme degree, the Apostle Paul says against these things, there is no law. Because if you radicalize the life that Christ, that Christ is calling you and your family to, what you get is a world that isn't dismantled, it isn't towers crashing down, but rather a world that is preserved by the very faith that is radicalized. It's the opposite effect the opposite effect of what we have come to know as religious extremism. And so, brothers and sisters, that is what I'm calling us to. I'm calling us to a radicalized form of Christianity that can go out to the workplaces and fill those places with hope and fill those places with love and fill those places with goodness and fill those places with kindness. Today we're going to be seeing a woman, one of the disciples of Jesus that lived out this extreme type of faith. And we're going to see demonstrated in her life an extreme level of devotion and an extreme level of generosity. But before we see those things in the life of this particular disciple, we're going to see it in the life 
of Jesus himself as he sets the pattern for his followers. So would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 26? Matthew chapter 26. When you get there, would you stand with me? Matthew chapter 26, we'll read the first 13 verses there. God's word says, When Jesus had finished all these things, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days in the, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring the ointment on my body, she has, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Coming out of Matthew 24 and 25, we're coming out of the Olivet Discourse. And we've been talking about Jesus when he returns in all of his power and glory. And he's been preparing his disciples for what that's going to look like. That day in which he comes to fully inaugurate his new covenant and the new heaven and the new earth began as his people, as his tribe is separated from those that don't know him and don't love him and are set upon thrones to rule over all of the cosmos. But now, as we come into verse 26, Jesus is moving away from this conversation of him returning in power and glory and in establishing that before he comes in power and glory, he must live here in humiliation and agony. That now the cross is coming and the cross is imminent. It is hours away. And before they experience the day of that victorious and triumphant return, they will walk through a very difficult and dark path. For the cross is coming. But this isn't just the pattern of Jesus' life. This is the pattern of life for his disciples too. This is the journey that they're going on. This is the path that they will be walking. And so as much as Jesus is bracing himself for the cross, he is bracing his disciples for the same end. To understand really the glory of this passage, the power of this, this passage, you really have to pay attention to the timeline. The timeline. The timeline is especially important as we come into these first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 6. Notice the first thing that we see, we see about the timeline is that Jesus says this is going to happen in two days. That I'm going to be delivered up to be crucified in just two days during the Passover. So this is the first time in the Gospels that we have recorded that Jesus is telling us exactly when it is that he will be crucified. When it is that he's going to die. Since Matthew 16, he's been predicting his death. He's been 
teaching on his death. He's been preparing his disciples for his death. But now he has come and he is telling them it is certain. You know, the only thing worse than having to do a terrible thing is the dread of having to do a terrible thing. The only thing worse than having to have a horrific experience in life is to know that a horrific experience is coming and that you can only wait for it. Imagine knowing as a, as a young child, as a teenager, and then as a young adult, the day of your cancer, that cancer is coming and that cancer is going to ravage your body and ravage your organs. And so every day you live in light of the dread of that moment. And the closer that it gets, it, it becomes, the more arresting the dread is. Imagine knowing that you're going to lose your child. Knowing at the, the day of their birth, as you celebrate like, An, like Andrew and Tasha are this morning, and you're, you're filled with jubilation, and the grandparents are coming, and everybody's visiting, and gifts are coming in, and you know on that day they won't live to see their third or fourth birthday. Can you imagine the dread? Imagine what it would be like to know that you are walking into the praises of people in Jerusalem, but just a few days later, just five days later, you will be going to mount on a cross to die a tortuous death. This is the life of Jesus. This is the position of Jesus. Jesus was born so that Jesus might live, suffer, and die in our places. And Jesus has not been unclear. He knows where his end is. He knows where he's heading. He came into Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die there. Can you imagine? And you see, brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus calls for us as his disciples to count the costs. This is why when we come to follow Jesus and we commit our lives to Jesus and we repent of our sins and place our faith and hope and confidence in Him, that Jesus says before we get into the boat with Him, we better realize that He doesn't have a pillow to lay His head. He doesn't have a roof to keep Him dry. That to follow after Jesus is to follow after the pattern of His own life. And the pattern of His life is in the shape of a cross. Is there any picture that is more clear of the extremity of Jesus' own obedience to the Father? The obedience that Jesus has to His heavenly Father and to the will of the Father is made clear by the fact that Jesus knows where, where He is going. He knows what's going to happen. He knows the pain that is there. He knows the humiliation it's going to bring to Him, to the entirety of His family. And yet Christ goes anyway. And this is the level of obedience that Jesus is calling every single one of his disciples to. The type of obedience where you come to Jesus with the faith that says, Jesus, even if my life gets difficult, even if my life gets complicated, even if my life becomes complex and, I don't, and it brings hardship into my family and it brings poverty into my family, Jesus, even if it costs me my very life, you are more valuable than all of those other things. And so I come now to you, Jesus, submitting my life to you, that you would take me, that you would lead me, that I will follow you wherever you lead me, including the cross. See, I think for most of us, we live every day with the assumption that life is going to get easier as it goes on, don't we? We live believing that, that I'm going to make more next year, 
I'm going to save more next year. Or when I'm, when I'm 25, when I'm 35, when I'm 55. We think, well, once the, once the kids get up a little bit, then, then life won't be quite so complex. When, when, when we've been married for a longer period of time, then we'll, we'll be more in harmony with one another and more at peace with one another. Then, maybe once, once my kids graduate from high school, when they finally graduate from high school and they finally have graduated from college and they've got their own families, their own marriages, then, then I'll be able to do a lot of those things that I've wanted to do. So matter of fact, for most of us, that's the vision that we have for the last 15 to 20 years of our lives is that we could, we could work, build up, save, go through the mundane of life and then be able to coast for 15 or 20 years and say, I've served my time, I've done my thing, right? But what if following Jesus isn't a call to come and build towards something easier, but to come and follow Jesus means to press on towards something that is more complex, more complicated, more difficult, more costly. You see, I think that's the pattern that Jesus establishes for us. I think the pattern that Jesus establishes for us, for those who are going to follow after him, is not those who will live under the tyranny of convenience, not those who will make their decisions based on what is easiest and what is least complicated, but based on that which they know the Lord has called them to do, that which they know God has sent them to this planet and to their family and to their community to accomplish for his glory, to take upon themselves his own mission to go to the ends of the earth and to make disciples every place that you go. So when I was in college, we had this website, all right? And you really shouldn't check it out, all right? So, but I'm gonna tell you what it is. So just, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give this to you in faith, all right? But it was ratemyprofessors.com, all right? And so you would go on ratemyprofessors.com and you, your purpose in going there was not so that you could figure out who would best teach you, all right? Or who would most effectively let you really wrestle with the difficult things of life and push you past your limits and stretch your mind. You went to ratemyprofessors.com so that you could figure out how to get the easiest A possible. You went to ratemyprofessors.com so that when you were making out your class schedule, you could go there and you could say, all right, that's a joke, that's a joke, that's a joke, sign me up for all of them, right? And I think we've taken the Rate My Professor concept and we've applied it to the entirety of our lives, to everything that we do. We just want something simple, something cheap, and something easy. And whatever is easiest, whatever is simplest, whatever has the least complications, that's what I'm willing to do. But brothers and sisters, if we are to go where God is sending us to go, if we are to be the church that God is calling for us to be, if we are to reach our community the way that the Lord intends for us to reach our community, we must not be slaves of convenience, but joyful bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that more people don't adopt? Because it's hard. Why is it that we don't have more foster parent, parents? Why are there more children? There are families for us to bring them into because it makes your life more complicated. Why is it that we have few, pe few people that want to live on mission or go to missions? Because it's hard, it's difficult, it's costly. Why is it that, that maybe a lot of people don't want to serve in the church or teach our children, train up our teenagers to go and to, to be who God has 
train them to be, to, to bring them into the kingdom of God, or to teach a, a group of adults to, to start a ministry of their own because it will make your life more complicated. And we don't want to do that which will complicate our life and add complexity to our life and add hardship into our lives. But to follow after Jesus is to say, I am willing to go where the hard road leads right now. I am willing to walk down the narrow path right now because I know that the narrow path, the hard path, is going to turn to glory. I know that right now what God is doing in the world is greater than what is easy. It is greater than what is cheap. It is greater than what is simple. And where the Lord leads, where the Lord calls me, there I will go. Brothers and sisters, if we live our lives by what is easy, if we live our lives according to that which is uncomplicated, we don't even need God. That doesn't require faith for a life like that. But Lord, but brothers and sisters, if you want to experience the Lord in a powerful way, if you want to have stories and testimonies that'll be told generations after you've gone on to the next life, walk in the ways of the Lord. Walk down the hard and difficult path and you will see the faithfulness of God and you will see the provision of God and you will experience the goodness of God in ways that you never could when life was just simple and easy. Brothers and sisters, follow after Jesus. Follow after Jesus on the disciples' path. As we continue to look at the timeline here, I want you to notice something that stands out. All right? Now, if you read it quickly, if you read it too quickly, it can, it can kind of blend in there. But notice Jesus has this timeline, right? So, so Jesus says in verse 2, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. But then listen to what it says about the leaders of Israel. The chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see this? All right, so, so you have the, the people, the, the leaders of Israel. Caiaphas is the high priest. You have uh, a lot of the other members of the Sanhedrin that are there with him, and they are done with Jesus. They've, some, something has to be done about this man, this teacher, this radicalized prophet that has come and flipped the tables in the temple. Something has to be done by, about this man that has brought curse upon all of us and, and cursed the fig tree and said it's a picture of us and all of those things. Like Something's got to be done, and so they decide that they're, they're going to do it. That they're going to execute him. That their murderous indignation can't be suppressed any longer. But what do they say? So we're going to have to wait until after the feast, obviously. Obviously. Because Israel, uh, Jerusalem at the time, would, the population, I've told you before, would have swollen five times its ordinary population. Not only that, you would have had a number of, of pilgrims that would have come in from Galilee. And the Galileans were especially sympathetic toward the ministry of Jesus. It was many of the Galileans that were praising and shouting Jesus' praises as he was coming into to Jerusalem during the triumphal entry. And so they think, we've got to wait for all of those people to go home. We've got to wait for Jerusalem to get back to normal. We've got to make sure that we don't incite a riot among this enormous crowd. So let's just, let's just get through the feast. Let's just get through the Passover. And once we get to the other side, all will be good. And we'll, we'll take care of this self-proclaimed prophet. But Jesus has an entirely different timeline, doesn't he? Jesus says that I'm going to die in two days. I'm going to be delivered over in two days. And then I will be crucified 
during the Passover. See, the Passover, it was the most significant holiday for the people of God. The most significant holiday, the most significant festival for Israel. For it commemorated the time in which they were in, Israel, uh, in Egypt and they were oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. And Pharaoh continued to harden his heart toward God. And hardening his heart toward God, he refused to relent and let the people of God go and to take up Canaan, which was the land that was promised to them. And so as the greatest of the plagues, the Lord said he's going to send the angel of death over all of Egypt. And the only way to escape his wrath is to cover, to slaughter a lamb and cover the door facing of your house with the blood of the lamb. And so as the angel of death passes over Egypt, all of those that were, had the blood of the lamb over their door are passed over and the firstborn remains alive. But in the rest of the house of e- houses of Egypt, there is at least one member that dies. And so with haste, with the, the, the Pharaoh relents and he lets them go. And without even having enough time to leaven their bread, they run out to escape and be delivered from their bondage. But you see, the lambs that were slaughtered on that day, the lambs that were slaughtered to cover the doors of the houses of Israel, the lamb's blood that was used as paint to deliver God's people from the wrath of death were all pointing forward to a greater lamb. They were all pointing forward to the lamb of God that was sent of God, who would die one sacrifice for all, the one who was unblemished, pure and righteous, that would lay himself upon the altar of the cross and give himself up all for God's people. And so as the Passover pointed forward, as Jerusalem was just filled with crowds of people, the Lord is going to be delivered over as the great Passover lamb. And so we have these two timelines that are competing with one another, don't we? We have one who says it's going to be in a week and one who says it's going to be in two days. And brothers and sisters, history tells us what happened. History tells us what happened. That two days later, Jesus was handed over by Judas, betrayed by one of his own into the hands of these murderous monsters. Monsters that look like you and I. And that Jesus was handed over on Thursday night and he was crucified by Friday morning. See, we learn something there, don't we? We learn something there. That evil, wickedness, doesn't catch God off guard. That the Lord is sovereign, even, maybe even we should say especially over all the wickedness and all the evil that's in the world. That, that, that if they can take and use the evil of men that want to kill his very own son, brothers and sisters, he can take the evil from each one of us and he can use that for his glory. You see, for the Lord is so sovereign over evil that every wicked intention, and every uh, unrighteous act will ultimately be twisted and manipulated by the Lord God himself to be subservient to his own glory. That means that whatever you're facing right now, The cross is the evidence. The cross is the proof that if you are genuinely in Christ, whatever hardship, whatever brokenness, whatever difficulty, whatever unhealth you know right now will be used as a servant of God's own glory and a servant of your own good because God is Lord and God is sovereign over all that is evil. 
God is going to take your anxiety and in the next life you will have only peace. God is going to take your loneliness and He gives you the opportunity to know unending intimacy with Him. God's going to take your tears and He's going to wipe them from your face and He's going to fill you with a joy that is so full and so profound as you abide truly and fully and ultimately in Him that it will never pass away. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know if you wake up every day and you just feel bad. I don't know what's going on in your family or with your kids. I don't know what's happening in your job. But brothers and sisters, take peace. Take refuge in that God, God established through the cross that His timing is perfect and that His ways are glorious and all of the heartache and all of the pain that you know will be servants of His glory. So as we see, there, there's a second scene that takes place. That, that they're going and Jesus is homeless, he's, he's humble. And so he begins to reside in the home of Simon the leper. He's at least having a meal in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, many scholars believe that this very well, that Simon either may be the, the dad or the brother of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so this would have been a place that would have very likely have been uh, especially familiar to Jesus and a place that would have been comfortable for him and a, that would have received him well. And Jesus is there and, and he's reclined at the table and, he's, and the way that they would do that is they would lay on one elbow and their feet would be stuck out in the, around the edges as they ate and they fellowshiped with one another and they talked about things with one another. And you can imagine, the mood there is somber. The mood there is serious. Jesus has declared, in two days I'm dying. In two days I'm going to where the worst criminals are murdered and I am going to hang right between them. And so he's here with his disciples in this intimate moment. And while he's there, a woman, John in his account of the story tells us that this is Mary Magdalene. She comes in and she has an alabaster flask. An alabaster flask was, was used and it could only be used one time. That, to, that it, was, uh, it was big at the bottom and it had a, a skinny neck on it and you had to break the tip of the neck to be able to pour it out so that once it was opened, it had to be used in its entirety. And she comes in and she comes with uh, this alabaster flask filled with what Matthew tells us is an expensive and an exquisite ointment. John tells us that the value of what was in that flask was more than an average man's entire year's worth of wages. And so she snaps the top off of that neck and she begins to, to pour it out over the head of Jesus. And she pours it out in, in its entirety, completely streaming down. And, and we read in the other accounts that she even has enough to be able to wash and to anoint his feet. Can you imagine? Can you imagine having all of an entire year's salary and taking it and having one that you so believe in? One that you are so devoted to that you take an entire year's salary and you just, you just dump it over him. And you say, Lord, whatever is mine is yours. You are more valuable to me than the most precious things that I have. See, the implied in this idea of pouring is that, that there's no measuring involved. This isn't a calculated, measured 
poor. This is, this is her literally taking the most precious thing that she has in all of her life, most likely a family heirloom, and she takes it and she breaks the tip of it off and she empties it all on the head of Jesus. And what she was saying is, Jesus, you are more precious to me than the most precious thing that I have. It was her giving her entire life to the Lord, her offering her best to him, recognizing the truth about who he was. You see, today he was a humble and he was a, a homeless servant, but he really was the king of glory. He was a humble and homeless servant, but the Lord Jesus was truly a, the king of glory. But in two days, he wouldn't be wearing a crown of gold. He would be wearing a crown of thorns. He wouldn't be holding the scepter of the universe, but rather his hands would have nails driven through them. He wouldn't be receiving the praises and the acclaim that he was owed. Instead, he would be spat upon and mocked as they gambled for his clothes at his feet. But Mary... Mary knew the truth. Mary recognized who he really was and she wasn't about to calculate and measure out her offerings. Instead, she offered the entirety of everything that she had, the most precious thing in her possession, and she pours it out over him, anointing him as the king, giving him the proper burial of royalty. You know, you'll know the character of your faith by how carefully you measure your offerings. You'll know how much you value Jesus by how carefully you count out what you give to him. How much of my time do I have to give? How much of my energy do I have to give? How much of my money do I have to give? How generous do I have to be? How, how giving do I have to be? How selfless do I have to be? How self-denying do I have to be? When the Lord Jesus calls for each one of us to be living sacrifices that lay what is most precious to us on top of him and say, Lord, you are more precious to me than everything else that I have. And so what we see here is we see in this this picture of this beautiful woman, this woman that is pouring over her most precious possessions, how precious in fact how precious in fact Jesus is. And his disciples entirely miss it, don't they? They entirely miss it. They look at her and they rebuke her. How could you? How could you? How could you take and just weigh something so valuable? What a waste. Like, you could have sold that. Do you know how many people we could have fed with that? Do you know how many meals we could have eaten? We're hungry too, Mary. We have all kinds of issues. Have you ever heard about what Jesus did with the loaves and the, and the fish? What do you think he could have done with all of that if you would have just went and sold it and gave him the money? Jesus looks to them. He's, you don't get it. You don't get it. Why do you trouble this woman? This woman has done a beautiful thing for me. What she has offered to me is proper and right and good. It is not a waste. It is worship. You see, whatever you offer to the Lord, whatever, whatever you give over to Him, as difficult, as painful, as complex as it is, it's never a waste. It's never a waste. 
Whatever you offer to the Lord is not a waste. No, brothers and sisters, it is worship. So when we lay the entirety of our lives on the cross of Jesus Christ and we say, Jesus, I have been crucified with you. It is no longer me who lives. It is you living through me. Take me where you want me to go. Do with me what you want to do. Lord, I am yours. This life is the most precious thing that I have and I give it all to you, the King of glory. And when you get there, brothers and sisters, you'll realize that not one ounce of agony, not one second of discomfort, not one minute of confusion and complexity in your life will have felt wasted. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the day that you stand before the Lord in His judgment? We've just read about this in Matthew 24 and 25. And you're there, and maybe you're one. You gave up your, you gave up your livelihood. You, you died penniless like Spurgeon and so many of the other great Christians of the past because you lived so radically generous that you gave away literally all that you had and died penniless. On that day, can I tell you, you will not feel as though you wasted one nickel. You will not feel as though you wasted one penny. What if you give up a convenient life here what if you give up an esteemed education for your children to go to Haiti and to care for the people there with malaria-infested mosquitoes? Can I tell you, when you stand before the Lord Jesus, it will not feel like a great sacrifice. No, brothers and sisters, you will stand before the Lord Jesus and you will be utterly astounded that an investment so, so little, a cost so cheap, can bring a return so mighty and wonderful as that. One day, when you stand before the Lord, and right now you're driving in a, a car that's running hot so that one more kid, so that one more child may hear the gospel, so that one more child may be brought into the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, when you get before the king of glory, you won't be riding in a clunker. You will be raising your hands and you will think, praise God. God, that he did that through the small investment that God used my life for. Not one thing will be wasted when you offer it to the Lord Jesus as worship. I think about brothers and sisters in our own church family. I had a brother in my, my office just this week, and he, he is thinking more and more that as the Lord moves him toward retirement, that, that God's going to send he and his family to go and plant a church. I think about Dale and Rhonda that have testified as they come in, as they're preparing to come in to their retirement years, that they're going to liquidate the things that they have so that they might go to the ends of the earth and share the gospel wherever God sends them to be. I think about Josh, who's in seminary, giving up the final years of his 20s, that he might be trained and sent out and deployed for the good news of the gospel wherever God would have for him to go. I think about young moms and dads leaving their little ones behind to go on mission and to share the gospel and to wake up early and to study God's word. And I think, what a, what a wonderful offering of worship. And can I tell you, brothers and sisters, all of you that are there and all of you that are being called forward, not one second, not one ounce, not one minute will be wasted. Instead, the Lord Jesus will look upon you and he will say, beautiful is your offering to me. Beautiful is your offering to me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together.